I got some crackpot report. Eros, the whole damn asteroid is moving under its own power. This is Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to the TV we're obsessed with. And right now, we're watching The Expanse. I'm Jonathan Gitlin, and on this week's show, we've got an interview with scientist and writer Mika McKinnon, where we talk about The Expanse, its depiction of science, Mika's work as a consultant to other TV productions, including a possible hand in Sharknado, and how to balance the risk of climate change versus volcanoes and earthquakes, among other topics. You know, I don't feel any acceleration, but man, it sure looks like I'm leaving you guys in the dust. On this week's episode of The Expanse, Detective Miller was still left holding the bomb, quite literally, on an Eros station that appears both self-aware and also able to ignore the laws of physics. The station is headed right for Earth, where there's an awful lot of mistrust happening in the UN's war room. Is this whole thing a Martian plot? Hammer thinks everything is an AO. I assume built by Mars. Who else? They provoke a conventional war as a smokescreen. They're about to find out. Of course, we the viewers know that it's really Jules-Pierre Mao and his stooge Ehrenreich, although the former has disappeared from view, presumably hoping his vast wealth will let him escape the consequences of his science experiment. Back on Eros, we've finally gotten to see what the protomolecule is really up to. You know those voices on Aaron? I think this thing is taking the... I don't know consciousness some part of whatever it is makes us human. Miller has to retrace his steps from his earlier visit to the station, taking in that pachinko parlor and ending up back at the Blue Falcon Hotel, the last resting place of Julie Mao. A hangdog detective finally gets to meet his missing person, or what's left of her, for the protomolecule has incorporated Mao into its control structure of sorts. Hey, can you hear me? You need to come back to me now. With Eros able to break the laws of physics to defend itself, it's up to Miller to persuade it, or her, not to crash the station into Earth. Finally, we think that kiss at the end is really going to divide the audience. Whatever happens, happens to both of us. It's going to be okay. You belong with me. To be fair, we think the TV show handled it slightly better than it was in the book. But now, let's hear from Mika. The first question I have really is, is what drew you to the series? Oh, it's hard sci-fi. I always like hard sci-fi. And it's really fun to have a show that does a gritty future. Mm -hmm. So many visions of the future are so clean and tidy and that social issues are no longer actually a problem and racism is done and we don't have money anymore. The whole works. Right. And if we look at our actual society and how we actually talk about even space exploration, we have enormous ethical issues. Mm-hmm. In the near term, just looking at the, the race to Mars and who's going to be the first one to put a human on Mars, we have enormous cultural and ethical issues of how do we keep it from being yet another version of colonialism. Mm-hmm. And it's weird to think of colonialism on a planet with no life, but it's... Is that viewpoint, that framework of of approaching the world. And I feel like The Expanse does an amazing job of looking at if we took the societies that we have now and actually went into space with them, we'd have these horrible, messed up, jumbled places with people being unhappy and poor and in conflict and at war and all of the things that we have on Earth, but now in space. Right. The fact that we're nowhere near a post-scarcity society. And these days, I guess it looks like it's even further off. Yeah. And that... There's a lot of attention that's paid to the physics in sci-fi movies. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, the physics is one of the easier things to get right. And it's the biology and the cultural parts that are squishier and more complicated. And I mean, Spans definitely cuts some corners on the biology by having like occasional miracle molecules where you're like, oh, and everything is terrible because we needed a big fancy name that does this. It's the the equivalent of unobtainium, right? Oh, oh, for the the proto-molecule? Yeah, like, you know, we have something big and fancy that does terrible things and just science it. But... There's a lot of attention paid to the social dynamics and the social sci-fi that is often underrated. Yep. 
I think you can really tell the depth of work that went on into the backstory of the entire world. I think so talking to Dan and Ty, you know, mm -hmm. who wrote the books, work started on that back around 2001, originally as an MMO. And you can feel that there's, you know, a decade and a half's effort went into making everything realistic, I think. And, and like you say, you know, people have complex motivations and there are factions all over the place. And it's not clean and pretty like Star Trek. Yeah, Star Trek is a classic example of the clean, pretty future. But it's often, I, it's hard to come up with classic examples of cultural sci-fi, of the mm -hmm. what if of cultural change. And like Ursula K. Le Guin did a beautiful a cultural sci-fi in terms of looking at, well, what if our society is this, that, or the other? Or like movies like Gattaca do a kind of a gritty near-Earth future in terms of cultural sci-fi. But oh, there's I'll not- I bet the genetic determination in that movie. Yeah. But there's not that many examples of mm -hmm. places to exploring what if we take our cultural quirks now, what if we take our societies as they are now, and expand those outwards. Right. And that's that's what drew me to it. That's what I find fascinating. It's people in space doing cool things. So, of course, I inherently am biased towards loving it. But I appreciate even more that we're looking at the problems of what if we do? <laughs> what are mining camps here on Earth? What are they going to look like in space? Well, having spent a lot of time in mining camps, I recognize that world. I know those people. I've spent many, many, many hours with them. Does the show do a good job of, of translating their world out into a solar system where, in addition to the dangers of the job of mining, you also have to pay someone for your air and water? So mining camps here on Earth are really interesting in that they're like these little isolated islands that often have terrible communication, limited resources. Uh, you can get cut off by a rainstorm and have to helicopter in the milk for coffee. Like it's it's a very strange world that way. And it's one of the places you find the the Wild West of the movies is still going on here on Earth. It's if you get hurt out in the field, you better hope somebody nearby knows how to create a splint out of that tree branch. Right. And in terrestrial mining camps, real world actual mining camps, the entire society revolves around the mood of the cook and the pilot. Mm -hmm. They are the most important people ever. And I feel like that chunk is not necessarily translated all that well. Pilots are always nice and big and fancy. But uh, the importance of the cook and how everybody wants to make sure the cook is happy no matter what, I feel like could translate a bit better into the expanse of having ye who controls the resources, the person who's determining whether or not you have like the air smells pretty or it all smells like stale recycled farts, keeping them happy and in a good mood. I think we see little glimpses of that maybe on the ship, you know, the dynamic yeah. in the Rossi. But you're right, perhaps, perhaps. Not so much in the asteroid belt chunk. Did you come to the show originally through the books or was your first exposure watching it on TV? Watch it on TV. Okay. Perhaps. I have no concerns okay. about spoilers. It, I am one of those people who will read the last little bit of a book first to make sure it's worth reading. Right. Or in case you die before you get to the end. Well, more along <laughs> the lines of in case they're a terrible writer with a really letdown of an ending. I don't want right. to get emotionally invested. <laughs> Fair enough. I need to have faith that they've got a good payoff. So how are you enjoying season two so far? I'm totally having a lot of fun with it. All sci-fi requires the what if and the suspension of disbelief. <laughs> and one of the big reasons to hire science consultants is to have a big enough justification and large enough. We've gotten so many details right that I'm willing to give you a pass on something bigger. Right. And the purple molecule is my pass on something bigger. Gotcha. And it's it's important. It's it's plot central. And I, I accept that and I'm rolling with it. If it helps you any, the technology in the protomolecule, it was originally sent at our solar system about four billion years ago. And it has it has a purpose behind it. So it's definitely extraterrestrial. It's extremely old, very powerful tech. The scientists they had in season two, episode three. So they have these crazy scientists who've, who've had their brains altered, basically to remove mm -hmm. any kind of empathy or ethical reasoning. 
which I have to say, as, as someone who worked in science policy for quite a few years and, <laughs> and heavily with bioethicists and, and LC researchers, to see that side of science kind of com- completely stripped away of any research protections or, you know, the idea of research participants rather than subjects to have gone, gone back way past Tuskegee or Guatemala into the future is, is certainly an interesting look at kind of science unbound. Yeah, the ethics of research is always really fun in a sci-fi setting, partly because like anyone who's worked in science policy or worked in academia knows that you need to fill out a million sheets of paper. Right, like, there's, the, there's the ELSI police. Yeah, like I have a friend who, who does work on barnacles mm-hmm. and needs to fill out paperwork saying they're killing a million specimens a year. And every year they get pushback on it to the point where the university is considering changing policy to exclude barnacles because they don't want to have to say we're killing a million test subjects a year. <laughs> No such concerns on Eros Station. No. And then you go into the fictional world where you're like, wow, science is a lot like when you remove all the ethical constraints, then suddenly the levels of paperwork are just so much easier. That's that's right. It's it's amazing what you can get done when no one cares. Yeah. Um, And it's, I mean, on a fundamental level, I believe in science policy actually having ethical bounds on it. And when you have an ethics-free society, you end up with Uh, Well, an ethics-free research society, you end up with a lot of questionable discoveries, particularly in terms of sciences done by people, and people are inherently biased and flawed. Mm -hmm. So one of the many, many reasons to have ethics in research is not just to be good human beings to each other, but also it puts a cap on how much your personal bias can come into play in the types of experiments you do. Right. And when you remove ethics, then you can suddenly start with some seriously questionable hypothesis and then do what it takes to prove them which we've seen in real life quite a bit so i'm totally fine with seeing it in a fictional setting it's also just like oh let's not do this as a role model for what science should look like let's not do this as the future we want so you have quite a background in giving science advice to the media yeah. that's correct right you can maybe maybe yeah. tell our audience a little bit about some of your experience there and then and then maybe we can discuss how you think the expanse is handling the subject so I started with Stargate Atlantis and worked on Stargate Universe. And I started off just being effectively the stunt handwriting, where you've got this genius scientist up at the chalkboard trying to figure things out. And if they wrote M equals MC squared, you're going to be rather disappointed that our genius saving the world failed high school physics. So my job was to have plausible, related, recognizable novel science. All of the equations of things you could go, oh, that looks familiar, but I don't quite know what it is. And later on, as I built up trust with the the people running the show, I got more and more involved also on the visual effects or on the writing side. Eventually, by Stargate Universe, it was, hey, we need an astrophysical big baddie that kills everybody every 22 minutes. What is it? And I come up with the, the scenario for that, which makes me very, very happy because this year we just made a discovery to justify a astrophysical big baddie that I put in Stargate Universe five, six, seven years ago. That's awesome. I feel very, very happy. Vindication. Exactly. It's like, yeah. (laughs) Everyone always says, Star Trek got it right first with technology. Well, Stargate got it right first with slow pulsers and feeder stars. It doesn't have the same ring to it, but whatever. If the Oscars or the ever merge with the Nobels, there there, there ought to be a category for you. Exactly. It'll be our little little pulsar system. Because otherwise, if you just had a really slow pulsar, it'd be like trying to kill somebody by holding fridge magnets and doing cartwheels. The Mm -hmm. electromagnetic field would just not be strong enough to be deadly. Most recently, I've been working on No Tomorrow, which is a romantic comedy about the end of the world. Mm -hmm. So A a popular topic these days. Yeah, it's a romantic comedy and yet has extremely high level astrophysics orbital determinations. The asteroid itself is a blend of Apophis, the asteroid named by Stargate fans, and Psyche, the heavy metal asteroid that NASA is going to go explore. 
So was that named by psych fans by any chance? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, I know it would be more fun if it was, but of course, psych is going to be explored by the mission psych, which is something making space writers already irritable. But yeah, so No Tomorrow has a lot of Easter eggs for hardcore sci-fi fans if they want to go explore that. I may or may not have worked on Sharknado, and I honestly don't know. Mm -hmm. Because the story was so unintelligible when it came out? Well, so as a science consultant, you can work on multiple stages of a project. Mm -hmm. You can be way in the early pilot stage when everyone's first getting their ideas together, and you're giving them enough science to be able to create a plausible plot. Like, here's some real challenges you can do, or hey, you're telling this story anyway, here's some other things you might not know about that environment, all that sort of thing. Then there can be involved at the writing stage. Here, let me fix your techno babble for you. Mm-hmm. And then there can be the onset science consulting of I'm the stunt handwriting for the various actors. And then there's post-production of things like make sure the dinosaurs have feathers in VFX. Right. Very important that. Oh, yeah. You have to have your fluffy dinos. So most science consultants only work at one stage in the process. I'm a little bit odd in that I work in all stages of the process, often for the same project, starting from beginning all the way to end, which right. is really fun. It, it creates a cool scenario. But for Sharknado, or what may or may not have been Sharknado, is I was hired by the correct production company to work at a pilot project before it had a title, mm-hmm. gave them a whole bunch of information about tornadoes, and then about a production cycle later, Sharknado popped out. And I have multiple questions about this. First, either that was the project they hired me, in which case, why? <laughs> Unless it was to have a to-do list of like, here's the science that we want to break throughout this. Right. I think that was a prime, prime case of um, if science interrupts the storytelling, science is taking a back seat. Yes. Well, I mean, it's. I honestly think the only reason they would ever hire a science consultant is to be like, let's have a list of things to mock. Or it could have been that the show I was working on got canceled. That happens a lot with pilot projects. It's in my contracts, I'm allowed to talk about things once they air or mm-hmm. after five years specifically because so many things will never air. Right. So how do you feel the Expanse is handling the subject matter? Obviously, um, we have we have some sounds in space, which, which not everyone will be happy about. <laughs> yeah, but there's also, so the purpose of having a science consultant is to add enough plausibility so that you aren't annoying the people who know better. So you're building up a consistent universe in which things function. And I, in my view, I don't need it to be our universe. I am totally fine of being an an alternate universe with slightly different rules, provided it's consistent. So where the Planck constant is a slightly different number. Yeah, exactly. Or in this case, you can have sound in space because whatever, because you have technology that makes it go on the spaceship walls because it makes everybody feel better and slightly more familiar Mm -hmm. because we actually have a very, very, very small amount of stuff in space that's actually transmitting the waves. Like, I don't actually, I don't mind as long as it's consistent. It would drive me crazy if then suddenly in one episode we had no sound in space. And I go like, oh, that better be a big important thing that you explain. It's also, I like having the small details of not plot important science. Mm -hmm. So all the little background things where it doesn't really matter but uh, one of the season one examples of pouring the drink and having the corkscrew yep. uh, spout pour down, it's a small, subtle detail that makes no difference for the plot. It added effort to actually make it happen, but it reinforces the environment and it reinforces that the rules are consistently applied to both important and unimportant things. Right. So one of the really neat things about sci-fi now is that we have seen so much of our solar system that we can use real maps and real data to determine what the environments look like. Mm -hmm. 
It used to be that we had to guess what did the surface of the moons of Jupiter look like. I mean, we only just sent a spacecraft to Ceres recently. Like the Dawn spacecraft has been there not that long. And we're still figuring out what's going on with its volcanoes. Like there's active science. We are learning about that, that little world right now that make it interesting and exciting and that we know we can use all of that to build a plausible future. And I really love that. Do you think that wealth of science that we now kind of have for our solar system is in part responsible for why there's so much great belter fiction at the moment? I mean, I'm thinking on, on TV, maybe less so, you know, we have The Expanse. But, you know, thinking of, you know, there's certainly there's the, the Expanse books and then things like Neil Stevenson's Seven Eves and Kim Stanley Robinson's Aurora, that kind of thing. It seems like we're kind of in a golden age for this topic. Yeah. So this is, this is part of kind of a, a historical reoccurring thing of science research is driven in part by culture and culture is driven in part by our curiosity. Mm -hmm. So the things we are curious about, we're going to tell stories about, but the things we're curious about, we're also going to explore. Right now, we're really, really close to, well, we are in the process of doing the background research necessary for off-planet resource exploitation to be a thing, mm -hmm. asteroid mining. And you can see that in terms of the number of space missions, the number of NASA missions that are targeting asteroids. We've just done OSIRIS-REx is going to go do an asteroid sample return. The Psych mission just got approved to go explore the heavy metal asteroid Psyche. That it's Lisa is going to go explore the Trojan asteroids near Jupiter. That we're sending out these, these projects now to learn more about asteroids than we did in the past. And we've just had a whole batch of the Dawn mission went to, to Vesta and then in a first went into orbit around another world by going to Ceres that we're, we're seeing more and more than we did before. Mm -hmm. And I think those two things are tied, that we're telling those stories because we know that's what's coming up in our future. And we're doing that exploration because that's what we want to come up in our future. Right. Your mining comment earlier, um, actually just, it reminds me, I don't know if you have, it was an old Harrison Ford movie from the early 1980s called Outland where it's a, about a mining colony on Jupiter and he plays a, a, a cop that has to police it. I think that's probably the only other space, like pretty good space mining sci-fi I can think of right now. One to maybe see if it's streaming somewhere if you haven't, haven't seen that already. Well, so law enforcement in mining camps is a really interesting problem. Mm -hmm. Again, it's that I've worked in many camps where there isn't actually a concept of the law. Right. Like, there, isn't, there isn't anybody to report anything to and it's all law enforcement is done by corporate bosses. It's who is who is the project geoscientist, who is the project lead, and they have the ability to fire somebody and kick them out of the camp. And right. I guess you could report it to the police, but it'd be a real like it'd be a long time to bring them out there. So you're not gonna say break up a fight between the laborers and the miners. It's not gonna be broken up by the local police. Right. Like it's going to be broken up by the other people in the camp. So obviously in the expanse now we have corporate security that, that runs each station depending on who owns it. So how do you think? So Miller obviously would, would fall into that, you know, category of corporate cop. He worked for uh, Star Helix before he gets fired. How do you rate Miller as a cop or as a mining cop? <laughs> I think it totally works. I mean, it's whenever you have private law enforcement, everything's going to be all over the place in mm -hmm. terms of ethics and ability right? Like yep. the ethical and moral code is going to be done by individuals, not by an oversight. Right. And I think that that's highly accurate. I think that that's totally plausible. And it's, it kind of makes me wonder if somebody spent some time in mining camps. I've always said that, like, it is my pet project constantly trying to convince people to do like, yeah, you need a geophysicist on the moon in your next project, because <laughs> mining camps are such a weird little world. 
Like it's anytime you have a really tiny society that's cut off from any everywhere else, you get really strong dynamics and you get really strange cultural quirks that build on each other. And we see this in island cultures. We see this in mining camps. We see this in Antarctic bases. Mm -hmm. We see it on the space station. You develop your, your special little ways of doing things. And I think that that plays out really well in the expanse of having unique cultures for each ship, each space station, each planet has its own, like we do things our way. It's not a homogenous culture. Right. It's strange and you're definitely the outsider and need to figure things out. Mm -hmm. I think they do a good job of using Belta Creole as a way of kind of projecting that onto the viewer. And as a viewer, you realize, you know, these are, these are different cultures and, you know, there's no subtitles and you have to kind of work out, you know, what are these strange words they're using? And I mean, it's, we totally see that in, again, in real life, it's, I mean, I'm Canadian American and we have this whole thing in Canada where we have a French population and Mm -hmm. then they were their farms and kicked out so they migrated down to new orleans and then they were allowed back so some of them came back up again so there's quebecois french there's new orleans creole there's like this band across the u.s of weirdly high proportion of people speaking french and all of it is archaic french where if you look at the slang in quebec it's 300 years outdated compared to the slang in paris yep i went to school with some french kids and some quebecois kids and the french kids certainly looked down their noses every time my yeah. friend maxime ever spoke in french so well i can't understand you and you're like oh really yes you can you're just being snooty and i feel like that also plays out in terms of like dialects showing up in yep. the expanse Definitely. there's dialects all over the place and that there's social ramifications of those their status and ethical things and how people respond when they hear you talking in yep. dialects and the slang is like again it's getting into the cultural aspects of humans are kind of mean so do you have any particular favorite characters in the show is there any anyone that stands out i always root for any time i see any woman doing science uh-huh. like that's just kind of my my default thing and i always root for anyone who plays with rocks right <laughs> like Those are my, I'll do it no matter what, no matter who the characters are and why they're doing what they're doing. So then Dominique Tipper's portrayal of of Naomi Nagata works for you. Yeah, I'm totally down with it just because I like seeing women in science roles and I like seeing geology being presented as an actual science when often, like we're talking about social status and classes. Well, geoscientists are often kind of the bottom of the totem pole in terms of science hierarchies. Really? I was a physicist and now I'm a geophysicist. And I can tell you the ranking is physics, geophysics, geology in that order. Physics are at the top of the heap and geologists are those uh, like is rocks with jocks. They can't well, do math. Physicists think they're at the top of the heap. But I mean, really, all they're just doing is math. I must confess, my background is, is in biomedical research. And I was a scientist a long time ago. And, you know, biology is messy and, and complicated. and We don't know the answers. Whereas, you know, physics is just yeah. like you do some sums and there you go. You've landed on the moon. Exactly. And that's that it plays out in terms of like biology is messy and complicated, but at least they produce doctors who are considered doctors, whereas doctors of geoscience, like it's one of those fake doctorates, right? It's right. one of those ones people don't actually respect as being a doctorate. And that in biology, you create new drugs and you understand how disease spread and you get to work with charismatic megafauna. So it's all the polar bears and panda bears. Mm -hmm. And in geology, we do mining and we do oil and we do all these things that are ethically uncomfortable. Ah, but you have volcanoes. Yes. So occasionally, like the disaster scientists, I am, I'm a master of disaster. You are a master of disaster. It's the best part. I work in landslides though, which is like the least exciting of the disasters. (laughs) We get the least money. But possibly the most common, no? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They absolutely are. Your odds of death by landslide are one in a million per year, which, you know, are pretty bad odds. 
it's it's generally low status. So anytime I get to see geoscientists on TV, I'm like, yeah, we're real scientists too. Or anytime you have like the lists of who are the most famous scientists, who are the pop culture scientists, who are the scientists you should follow on social media. It's really unusual to have a geoscientist in there. You get all the physicists, you get all the astronomers, you get Bill Nye, the science guy, who's an engineer, not a scientist, but you don't get the geoscientists on there. Right. Naming a living scientist is hard. Naming a living geoscientist is like, it never happens. And I mean, they're never the talking heads on TV documentaries or anything, unless it's a specific one on volcanoes, super volcanoes, which super volcanoes aren't a thing. So do you get bored with people asking you whether or not the Yellowstone caldera is going to pop? Oh, no, I totally have fun with it. People say I'm either a a very good or a very bad person to have at parties because inevitably I'll start playing like ask a scientist, oh, how doomed are you? Mm -hmm. Where people go, well, I live here. What are my hazards? I'm like, okay, let's talk about this. And I always have fun with it. I, it's one of the really fun things about geoscience is that you can do it anywhere. Right. And that where you are matters. There's different rocks in British Columbia, Pacific Northwest. We have brand new baby volcanoes that are like some of them are still erupting. Mount St. Helens is inside this lifetime. And then in Australia, you have ancient tired rocks where you identify the volcanoes by poking them and your finger sinks into this weathered clay. Mm-hmm. And you're like, ah, oh, this was a volcano a few million years ago. So I love that aspect of geoscience where you can go out, you can do it anywhere, and wherever you are, it's going to be different. Right. The Pacific Northwest seems to be, seems to be the, the, the best place on the continent medium term for climate change. There is that small chance that one day you wake up and see, oh, hey, here's a pyroclastic flow rushing towards me. I choose to live in the Pacific Northwest because I don't like dying. And it is. It's a great place for climate change. It's one of the few places that's going to get more rain, which does have its problems. But having too much water is is much better than having not enough. It is the only place in the world where we have tectonic uplift and glacial rebound, which means that the land is rising faster than sea level, which is lovely, honestly. Yep. And then we have volcanoes, but volcanoes are a really easy hazard to map out. Like, it's not like volcanoes will suddenly spurt 400 kilometers farther than we thought they would. So you can map out where's the flow are they going to go? Don't build your cities there. And the ash direction, the prevailing wind directions are interior U.S. The problem with living in the Pacific Northwest is those nasty subduction zone earthquakes. Mm -hmm. So the potential for magnitude 7, 8, or 9 earthquakes and because they happen so rarely, people forget they're in an earthquake zone. So the level of preparation is lower than it is in, say, California, where right. they have smaller but more frequent earthquakes. And extremely unnervingly, we only have an earthquake history of the last 11 earthquakes because geology is nasty and erases our history. So we can't actually tell what happened all the time. And from those 11 earthquakes, it looks like we have a major magnitude 8-ish earthquake roughly every 300 to 500 years. Well, the last one was 10 a.m. January 26, 1700. So... So what you're saying is you're not safe anywhere. No, everywhere has disasters. Everyone's going to kill you. Just which disasters are you comfortable with? I'm okay with earthquakes. I'm definitely okay with landslides and and eruptions. I'm really not okay with with severe storm. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to deal with a tornado or hurricane. I find them very unnerving. I'm West Coast. (laughs) (laughs) So, in, in fact, they're not going to be strictly natural disasters, and I'll try not to, to give too much away because I'm sure there are people <laughs> listening to this who, who don't want that many spoilers. You know, it does say in the post there will be spoilers. I think as we keep watching The Expanse, I think there may be some, some part of the story arc that speaks kind of more directly to your expertise. Woo! Well, I mean, so this is a really fun thing is that we've been learning that there are places with active volcanism in our solar system. And I mean, Io is the classic one right now of we've actually seen the eruptions. And we think that the Earth is the only place with active plate tectonics. 
but we're seeing strange things elsewhere in the universe or in the, the solar system that, I mean, Mars has the largest volcanoes in the entire solar system, but they're, they're extinct. The conditions that cause them are no longer there. The planet is too small and too cold to keep doing it. Unless we heated it back up, which you could do with an impact, a big enough impact. There are ways that are plausible for Mars to end up volcanically active in the future. They'd be extremely disruptive, but they could happen. Or we've seen now there's a constant debate of whether or not Venus is has plate tectonics. Right. And why we can't tell is because it has a thick and nasty atmosphere and it likes to murder spacecraft. Although I did read last week a story at ours and presumably elsewhere about now we have a probe that will actually be able to last long enough on Venus. So Russia has successfully sent, well, the USSR at the time, successfully sent spacecraft that landed on Venus. Mm-hmm. One of them even tried to sample on Venus, but, and this is why I, I say that Venus has like a nasty sense of humor. I definitely personify it in that the poor little spacecraft popped off its camera lens to take photos and then reached out to sample and sampled its own lens craft, but lens <laughs> cap. Yeah. So Venus would be really, really fun to explore some more. By doing analysis of images of Mercury, it looks like that there might actually be little earthquakes and rifts happening there, in which case that's completely unexpected. The Mercury might still be active. And then we start looking at all the moons of, of Jupiter and Saturn, and they're getting gravitationally pulled and yanked and tugged and might have like sub-ice oceans yep. and the, the tectonics from that. And then cyrovolcanics, so having icy volcanics happening. And we went and saw Pluto and saw like brand new, fresh terrain to have mountains younger than the Rocky Mountains. Completely was absolutely shocking. And is our understanding of the geology of the solar system and how planets work and form is very much a work in progress. Right. It's mouthwatering to think what, you know, with advances in sensor technology, where we're going to be able to go. I mean, if you think of, for example, some, you know, the, the Vega probes or Mariner or Viking, um, or even some of the more recent ones, what we're able to accomplish with such limited bandwidth to send data back. And then you think about some of the tools, you know, that researchers can use on this planet and, you know, which are obviously much more high bandwidth and, you know, being able to apply those to understanding our solar system and, you know, what that will do for our understanding of, you know, where this little rock we live on came from. It's awe-inspiring. It's it's incredible. And that we're developing new and cooler technologies along the way is fantastic. I mean, we're going to learn so much about gas giants in the next year between Cassini crashing into Saturn and then poor little Juno braving the crazy electromagnetic fields of Jupiter to try and understand what is happening underneath those clouds. It's so amazing. It's just science. It's great. I love it. I love how much we're learning and how being a storyteller is hard because you're trying to tell stories that will last and survive. Mm -hmm. But we're also learning so much science, particularly about how planets work, that it could all be outdated so quickly. In the 1960s, there was a high school physics teacher named Hal Clement who wrote sci-fi books, hard sci-fi books, and he specialized in fluid dynamics. And Mm -hmm. he wrote Mission of Gravity in which he was imagining there was a little exoplanet in a binary star system, and he imagined it was an oblate planet, so it was squished. So it had much higher gravity at the poles and almost none at the equator, and what sort of life form would be there, and how would it be to journey across the planet, and what would the the cultural norms and the biological evolution and all of that be? And what's really fun about this book is that then the epilogue, first of all, it's from an alien viewpoint where humans are like, 
an occasional voice from the sky who don't really do much. Mm-hmm. But then the epilogue of it is a physics lesson inviting the reader to poke holes in the science. And he's he actually flat out says, I'm at a disadvantage because I only know what we know about the science now. And in the future, we're going to know so much more. But here's my best guess. Right. And like, I love that perspective. I love that that way of viewing things. And from that viewpoint, the Expanse is doing some daring things by going, well, we're about to learn a whole lot more about the asteroid belt. We really are. And the, we've got a bunch of missions lined up specifically to investigate some of the places that are these real-life fictional settings. And some of the choices they made might be proven wrong inside of the next five years. Right. And I think that's, I mean, that's a risky and fun thing to do, is to imagine a world right before we go there. I couldn't agree more. Any particular aspects of the show that we haven't touched on that your particular, that, you know, really infuse you? Or What I'm liking about it is that we're seeing some hard science-based sci-fi. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the reasons I love working as a science consultant is partly because I get to have better science in the shows that I watch, yep. but also because entertainment shapes our culture. Mm-hmm. And although there can be a lot of talk about how science is this great big objective thing, science is done by scientists who are part of our culture. And everyone has an agenda. Yeah. And it's when you see science in shows, when you see the practice of science in shows, when you see the diversity of people who are doing science and the type of science they are doing in shows, that broadens the cultural viewpoint of who and what a scientist is and what they do. Mm-hmm. And I like that. I like that there's kind of bad people doing science. I like that there's really strongly moral people doing science. I like that they're doing biology and geoscience and there's an environmental scientist who's uh, complaining all the time. Like that there's all these aspects of science isn't just sterile people in lab coats. And I like that. Playing with colored liquid in pipettes. Exactly. And so science is more than that. And that I also kind of appreciate that it's not too much of the one person has seven PhDs and is an expert on everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not as as deadly as it usually is right so that that particular trope is not quite as painful yeah so i like that and i like that there's a lot of attention to detail in sci-fi in general it is easier to get attention to detail on the technical physics and astronomy side of things and it's harder to get in the biology end of things and that's just a weird little culture in terms of who do we have working as science consultants and who are we hiring as science consultants? So did you know that actually apparently there, um, the science consultant for the show is actually Naren Shankar, who's the showrunner. So he basically serves as the Expanse's science consultant. And they've got a couple of engineers on the writing staff, like people who trained as engineers, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether it's enough to keep the purists at Atomic Rockets happy, but it seems to be doing a pretty good job, I think. Good enough. And I think that it's... It's easier to destroy than it is to create. It's easier to poke holes in the science than it is to justify it. So for me, there's a lot of people who do like the terrible science mistakes and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I have much more fun going, okay, given everything that they've told us, how can I justify what could be perceived as a mistake? Right. And I mean, it doesn't always work. In Stargate, one of my least favorite things to defend is the freeze lightning Mm -hmm. where I can defend it. But it it definitely involves a lot of please stop asking those questions. (laughs) And I think every show has that. But it's really fun to kind of come up with justifications along the way. When they leave things out, do they leave, give you enough Easter eggs in the background? Are there enough things hidden away in the the things that are not the main focus of the story to be able to pull together some consistency and plausibility? Or can you find a way to justify it based on everything else you know about the universe? Right. And it's harder, but I think it's more fun and more rewarding. I would say that The Expanse passes that test. Oh, yeah. And I mean, there's a huge amount of consistency in things like how 
fragile the artificial environments are. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I suspect a lot of it is based on the sort of accidents we've had on the space station or on the space shuttles or on biodomes or in all these other little tiny isolated environments where we try and maintain an artificial environment. It's hard. It's really easy to disrupt them. Yep. One of the things I love that certainly came through in the books, and you see it woven in, you know, with odd, the occasional reference here and there, I think, when we see Belter life in the show. But, you know, this idea that, you know, kids are ingrained, you know, once they're old enough to read, you know, you're old enough to start checking the seals on spacesuits and, you know, making sure that the water purifier is working properly and, you know, that the <laughs> space station is not leaking air and, and how critical that becomes to your way of life because you, you are living in this, you know, fragile little aluminium eggshell in hard vacuum. And I guess on Mars, we see a similar sort of thing where, you know, there's this almost messianic belief in in terraforming the planet. And, you know, you have this, the whole society there is focused around this goal of, you know, a Mars decades in the future where you can walk around without a spacesuit on. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate that. So often right now we're hearing complaints of, oh, if we, if we screw up Earth's environment too much, that's okay. We'll just go to Mars. Mm -hmm. And it drives me crazy because if we cannot find ways to maintain our own functional environment, what makes you think we're going to succeed in building another one? That's going to be so much harder because exactly. if anything yep. goes wrong here on Earth, all you have to do is open the door and, hey, congratulations, you can breathe the air. It's If you're somewhere that you don't have those inherent resources, it's going to be so much more complicated. And I like how that plays out inside of the expansive, no matter how nasty it is on Earth, it's still easier and less stressful than even Mars. Right. Uh, like it's, you can count on the fact that you can breathe. You see this in, you know, yes, the, the dynamic between, you know, you have the OPA who want freedom from the inner planets. And yet at the same time, without Earth and, you know, the resources that we can still grow on Earth in the show, even though, you know, there's 30 billion people and obviously sea levels are much higher and there's been terrible ecological damage life in the solar system is still dependent upon what we have on earth and you know this tension between people you know the, the belt wanting to cut themselves free but you know is that realistic at this point yeah and that it's hard and complicated and so and this is i think entertainment can be an amazing way to have subversive cultural change mm -hmm. more people are likely to watch a tv show than are to spontaneously take a class at the university going back to star trek for example i mean you know the, the yeah. first interracial kiss on american tv yeah and that i think that this is it's extremely subtle and is never really out there. It's never really in your face, but it is very much an argument in favor of we need to study environmental science. We need to study climate change. We need to do a better job of sustainability that we need to pay attention to all of this if we want to have a future at all, no matter what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not in your face. It's not going to provoke anybody yelling climate change isn't real or anything like that, but it's, it's there anyway. It's a subtle argument. So I think that might be a, a great place for us to wrap up. Mika, it was, it was so great talking to you. Lovely. Thank you for having me on. You've been listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast about all the television that we're obsessing about. So be here next week and we'll talk some more. <laughs>